Well, not so. So we're now in Vipassana territory. We'll be here for a while. It's different territory. As soon as you're in Vipassana territory, there's an implicit orientation to the practice, if it's authentic Vipassana. And that is the whole point of Vipassana, is to bring about irreversible change and liberation. So nowadays, Vipassana, Vipassana is a popular movement, which is basically the same as the mindfulness movement. Uh, well, it's many things for many people. I don't want to be critical. For some people, it's simply a relaxation technique. So it's, it's many things for many people. So I'll just leave it at that. Let's get back to this. This is a Vipassana within the context of, of Mahamudra. It is a preparation for the actual practice of Mahamudra. Generally, an authentic, traditional Buddhism Vipassana is always oriented towards liberation. There's no reason to practice it, really, unless you're really intent on liberation. If you want to be comfortable in samsara, if you want to have a better life, be more comfortable in samsara, shamatha can be very helpful. The four measurables, very helpful. Be ethics, ethical, very helpful. Be a really nice, generous person. That'll be helpful. And you can make yourself a pretty nice nest. With that, that, that could be quite effective. It won't last, of course, but maybe you can keep on repairing it. You know, from lifetime to lifetime, just creating, you know, like, just like a, like, a, like a robin has to make a new, a new nest every year. So that's one possibility, but you just don't need Vipassana for that. Right? So Vipassana is about liberation. So that means path. That means expedition. That means getting our feet irreversibly unstuck from the ruts in which they have been stuck. And of course, these ruts are fundamentally, most importantly, reification, grasping. That's it. It's not to attenuate it, not to make it manageable, not to accept it, not to develop a friendly relationship with it, but to annihilate it. And so, within the context of Buddha Dharma broadly, if you're really setting out on an expedition, then you have to know where do you want to go? Where are you going? Right. And there are really only three destinations within Buddha Dhamma. If you're really setting on an expedition, an irreversible expedition, so you do you go and you don't come back, right? It's not samsara, it's not a merry-go-round, it's a one-way trajectory and you don't come back. And so there are only three destinations. And it's good to choose, have a clear sense of where do you want to go? It's your choice. Nobody can make that for you, nobody can push you. And so one possibility, and I'm gonna use the Tibetan because it's so clear is here's one possibility. Uh, when you hear about becoming a Da Jomba, you hear about it, it resonates with you. You said, count me in, I'm all in, this is it, this is what I want more than anything else. And a Da Jomba is an Arahat, and that's get the hell out of here. I mean, literally. I want out, I want out as quickly as possible, and I never want to come back, and I wish everybody else well. I hope you find your way but I really can't be responsible for you. How can I possibly do that? There's one person I can be responsible for, and I'm going to be responsible for, and I'm going to get the hell out and never come back. And you become a faux destroyer. So that's it. So it ends with that notion. So you, the, the word is cannot be misinterpreted. A faux destroyer. What are your foes? You know, mental afflictions. The mental afflictions and their seeds and their seeds. A seed is one that sits in the ground and if you germinate it, it will sprout. Well, an arhat is not only free of mental afflictions, but it doesn't matter how much water you pour 
on in our hearts and minds, those mental afflictions simply cannot sprout because they've been burnt. They've been torched, right? So you can, you can cut the head off an arhat, you can take all his money away, you can torture him to death, kill his family, you can do anything you like. You can try to seduce him, him, her, gender neutral, and you have zero chance. Okay? So you're a, a foe destroyer. So that's one possibility. What do you want? You want to become a foe destroyer? There's some I don't really quite resonate with it, but I kind of get it. And that is, what's that? Is it a Frank Sinatra? I want to do it my way. <laughs> the, to be very specific, it's not like, I don't need Buddha, I don't need anybody, I'm just going to go achieve liberation all by myself, because that's not it. Because it is, after all, taking place within the Buddhist context. But it is one whose aspiration, and it can be have some benevolence in it, the aspiration is, on, in that lifetime, when I do achieve irreversible freedom, liberation from samsara, after which I'll never come back, in that lifetime, I want to do it on my own. I don't want to have a teacher. In that lifetime. Now, I can have many, many teachers prior to that one. The preparation, the drum roll. But when I'm ready to break on through to the other side, you know, generation I was born in, uh, I want to do it alone. I want to do it alone. And often we find these... They're called in Tibetan Rangel. Rang means yourself. Gel is victorious. You're victorious on your own. You're victorious on your own. You've overcome mental afflictions, obscurations on your own. And they often pray that I want to do that when there's no Buddha Dharma around. When there's Buddha Dharma around, for heaven's sakes, go to a Buddha or go to a you know authentic lineage holder and receive teachings. But no, these people have a lot of machismo. Or machisma, is that right? Machisma? Yeah. <laughs> we have to make sure we cover both genders, because it's true. Uh, they say, you know, when things are really bleak, when it's barren, when it's a Sahara, when, when it's a Sahara of spirituality, when it's just there's just no Dharma any side, I just want to crop up. And I want to just do it there, on my own. And such Rangyal, they're called Pratyeka Buddha in Sanskrit, they will often not really teach so much worth words. They will blow people's minds with their cities. Their favorite one, I can tell you, their favorite one, kind of the classic one to show, whoa, like really catches your attention. You become a, you become a rangel, right? You become your own victor, self-victor, solitary realizer, self-victor, victorious one. And when they want to, when they're surrounded by people who are completely, completely deluded, you know, notion, complete 100% hedonic, and so forth, reifying everything, and thinking everything's fine, these people, to catch people's attention, they will, according to, uh, this is in the Pali Canon and so on, uh, they will levitate, that catches the attention, and then while levitating, they'll have rain pour from the bottom part of the body, and fire blaze from the top part of the body all at the same time. Apparently, it's very difficult to do. <laughs> just levitation, eh, like that. Just some water, water element, yeah. But water and fire while levitating? That's hard. People write home, Mom, you wouldn't believe what I saw today. <laughs> you know? So they persuade people, you know, they catch their attention. So that's a possibility. That's a possibility. That is an authentic destination. And then, of course, there's a destination of simply become a, becoming a jina simply a victorious one, and that is an epithet of the Buddha.
Okay? So that's it. If you want to follow a Buddhist path, those are your three options. If you want to find something else, then go to another tradition. Because, you know, people have different, different spiritual traditions and so on, have different end games, different final aspirations. But this is it in Buddhism, those three. So you get to choose. Well, we're here, so presumably we're already oriented to becoming jinnas, victorious ones, and that is victorious not only mental afflictions, the arhats have that covered, but victorious over all obscurations that in any way veil or obscure the full, radiant, unimpeded display of Buddha nature, Dharmakaya. Because the Pratyeka Buddhas and the arhats have not re- removed those subtlest veils or obscurations. They're called Nyaya Avarana, the obscurations to cognizance, and that is the full capacity of cognizance and the full capacity, frankly, of luminosity, of creativity, of Buddha mind, is not totally unveiled by the others. So now let's get specific. But these are three expeditions, very much like it really, and now we have three words there, an enemy destroyer, a solitary victor, and a victor. These are all military terms. There's just, no, there's just no getting around it. They were deliberately, consciously military terms. That's the end game. You win. You conquered. You've destroyed your enemies. And so, and so if we're intent on that, and let, now let's just move it right into this path we're following now, then clearly the path we have chosen here is the path of all of the jinnas, all of the victorious ones. The jinnas and jinnaputras, the children of the victorious ones. And so now we know what path. We know that we know the end. We know where we're going. We know what we'd like to achieve, right? And then we have a big question. So, okay, good. So you develop bodhicitta, some at least some facsimile, some semblance of bodhicitta. Very good. There's aspiring bodhicitta, the basic aspiration itself. But then, of course, you need to get it into gear. You need to actually activate it, get moving, start marching, marching on your path. You need to march, right? Set out. If you're setting out, the first thing you need, before you even take one step, frankly, is a strategy. You know where you want to go? Good. How do you want to get there? The, the Galupas have a strategy. It's worked for, what, 600 years, something like that? They have a strategy. It's, it's very well laid out. Quite homogenous, really. You can choose Vajrayagini, Amantaka, Gwesamaja, but pretty much it's Lamrim, stage of generation, stage of completion. That's pretty much it. And it has worked extremely well for many people. The Sakyapas have somewhat different strategy. The Kagyu, with the Mahamudra and the Six Yogas, somewhat different strategy. Then we have the Dzogchen, the Nyingmapas, internally very diverse, of course, but there is this fundamental strategy of Dzogchen. So what's your strategy? And frankly, it's not just what do you like, but what's, if you adopt a strategy, What's the one in which you have the, you have the feeling, the intuition, the confidence? I think this strategy could work for me. It's not that it's better or worse, because what works very well for Dicky may just not work very well for me. Armies are different, generals are different, soldiers are different. Some have horses, some have tanks, some have you know, bows and arrows, and so forth. What's the strategy? And you know, check out and see what the variety is. We do have that, you know, enormous possibility here. What strategy? What strategy? So, we see you have variety. And frankly, nobody can choose it for yourself. No, nobody can choose it for you. You can go to a Lama and say, Lama, what strategy should I follow? And the Lama may very well tell you. But do you know what happened before that happened? You chose the Lama. You chose the Lama. You choose a good Lama, 
serve you well. She was a bad lama. Eh. But you chose the lama. Say, I take refuge in the lama. I take refuge in all the Buddhas embodied in the lama. But I choose the lama. It's like that old joke my dad liked to tell. He said, in our family, uh, the husband makes, makes all the big decisions and the wife makes all the small decisions and the wife decides which is which. <laughs> That's about a 50-year-old joke and it still gets a good, good laugh. So sure, the Lama, the Lama does the divinations, the Lama gives you Vajra commands, the Lama tells you go into three retreat, the Lama tells you this, but you chose the Lama. You made the little decision. And you made the decision which is little and which is big. So let's just go briefly back to this question that we really engage with a lot for the first week of our time together here. Preliminary practices, preliminary practices. So I've got a wonderful story. I've told it many times. I'm going to tell it again. I wasn't there, but I heard it. I heard, I heard the story by listening to a tape recording years, years later. It was in 1980. It was a long time ago. 1980, Kalurambache. Rinpoche was in San Francisco, at the San Francisco Zen Center. I was, gosh, I was probably in India by then. Who knows? I wasn't there. But he was giving a talk. By then, he was already quite an renowned lama. and had a very good interpreter, Richard Barron, Chukinima. The, the Westerner, Chukinima. He's translating from an outstanding translator. And he's giving a talk probably to some hundreds of people because he was already quite renowned. And the question came up from the audience. It just happened to be in the San Francisco Zen Center. He's teaching Tibetan Buddhism. He's a great Kagyupa Lama. The question came up from the audience, Rinpoche. We understand that the preliminary practices and in the Gaikyu tradition, you're pretty much thinking 100,000 Vajrasattva, prostrations and so forth, classic. We've heard that the preliminary practices are indispensable. We've also heard that shamatha is indispensable. We find it there. It's in, we, we see it here. It's, it's all over the place in the Kagyut or Karasavane, the Kagyut meditation manuals and oral transmission, ear whisper teachings and so forth. So we hear they're both very important. They're both indispensable. Makes sense. Which first? So the question was strategy. What should we do first? Should we do the preliminaries, you know, go, just go right through them, 100,000 this, finished, check. 100,000 prostrations, check. 100,000, you know, check. Do we do that first and then do the shamatha? Or do we do the shamatha first and do all those preliminaries second? What should we do? So it, it's, he, he's the general, and here's one of the troops asking general, what's the strategy? We want to be effective here. You're the general. Please give us some advice here. So, so it's, it was, his response was so, I don't know, I found so inspiring. Obviously, I've remembered it for decades later, even though I wasn't there. It was maybe 10 years later I heard the recording of it. Here's what he said. I can, I can give it quite closely, and I can certainly give the gist without error. He said, well, if you practice, and if you, you finish your preliminary practices first, you do them well, of course, faith, motivation, all of that, uh, then by so doing, You'll be, a lot of purification will take place, purification, obscurations, and so forth, uh, and a great deal of merit be, will be accumulated, kind of if you're really charging up your battery. So if you do that, you do them well, and then you go into shamatha practice, your shamatha practice is going to be much more effective. 
because you will have cleared out a lot of the clutter, the obstacles, and so forth, hindrances. You will have cleared those out. That's the idea. And moreover, with all the merit you've been accumulating, you'll really have a full charge battery. So you can be quite efficient then when it comes to your shamatha practice. So there's a good rationale. There's a good strategy then. Do the preliminaries first, and then go on to shamatha. On the other hand, and that's what really caught my attention. On the other hand, if you really buckle down and do the shamatha first, and you achieve shamatha, really make the mind pliant, serviceable, stable, clear, luminous, ready, fit for action, and then you use that mind to do your vajrasattva practice, your guru yoga, your bodhicitta, oh, they'll be tremendously empowered. They'll be much, much stronger than if you just do it with your ordinary mind. Mind flick, you know your mind. You know, flaky, flip-flop, flip-flop, chatter, chatter, chatter. Vajrasattva, yeah, chatter, chatter, chatter. Don't, you know. There's going to be no comparison. There's going to be no comparison. And that was his answer. Choose your strategy. There's a good rationale for both. So that really made an impression on me. So then you look, you look, look at the Lamrim. You can see perfectly well what the strategy is. The strategy is develop your renunciation on two levels. Develop your bodhicitta, develop generosity, ethics, patience, and enthusiasm. And then, if you're really a Lamrim practitioner, not just someone who talks about it, then practice shamatha and achieve it. I think it's hilarious when some galupas say, oh, I don't do shamatha, I'm, I'm a Lamrim meditator. Yeah? Exactly what point in the Lamrim did you become illiterate? <laughs> I really don't get that at all. I mean, the grand finale, I mean, all you have to do is look at the three volumes of the translations of Tsongkhapa's great exposition. The third one is the culmination, and that's shamatha and then vipassana. To say you practice Lamrim and you skip that is like, okay, I don't know. The, the analogies that are just come to mind just overwhelm the mind. That is, cuckoo. That's about pretty much all I'd have to say to that. If you go to the Kagyu Nyingma tradition, you may be, the strategy may be do the four thoughts to turn the mind. Everybody says that. Kelu, Kagyu, Nyingma, Sakya, they all say do that. One variation or another, do that. And then they may very well say, do the preliminary practices. Get cracking, do your 100,000, this, that, and the other thing. And maybe they get around to shamatha, maybe they don't. But the classic teachings say do it. Right? Go to Lerap Lingba, he's an interesting one. He was a great 19th century Dzogchen master. And a personal tutor, a Dzogchen tutor for his homeland, is the 13th Dalai Lama, man of tremendous substance. And as I mentioned before, there's a, a truly wonderful biography written in English. So it's not a translation from Tibetan. Uh, and it's called Fearless in Tibet. Really good, really good, amazing biography. But really a biography of an amazing life. And he was clearly, a, he was a siddha. He was an accomplished being. He he mind-blowing. So in his classic teachings, which I've translated actually, which one outstanding Kembo, Kembo, Kembo Namdur, is going to be teaching uh, within just a few days in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. He's not going to be teaching his commentary, but teaching the teachings called the Chetsun Nyingtik, the heart essence of Chetsun, Senge Wonshu, who is one of the few after Padmasambhava and Vimalamitra who achieved great transference rainbow body. Very rare. Chitsun Senge Wanshu, 13th century, I'm pretty sure. He achieved that. He took the heart essence of Vimalamitra, who was, a, who was you know, contemporary of Padmasambhava, took that and laid out a path, a complete path. Complete path. The heart essence of Chitsun, heart essence of Vimalamitra. 
It, that, that whole lineage was revitalized by Chitsun Sengyuanshu, and that was carried on right to the present. Lit up Lingba wrote an outstanding commentary to it. Actually, he spoke it, and it was written down. That's what I've translated. And the strategy there, I received the first part of it from his incarnation, Kimbo Jimit Pinsol. The strategy there is a bit different. As a, as, as, um, as a person who's interested in strategies, you know, like, like I'm in military school, what my dad suggested to me when I was 13 or so, I, I got into military school. Ten hut. Twenty years of Galuva military school. <laughs> so I'm interested in military strategy. His strategy is very interesting. He has seven um, seven common preliminaries. Seven common preliminaries. Clearly not the same as here. We have just three common preliminaries. He had seven. Without going through all of them, what it boils down to is, in various ways, develop an absolutely pure, authentic motivation. He doesn't even go as far as bodhicitta. He says, you know, just develop, you know, completely turn away from samsara. Total disillusionment with samsara. You've got to be totally disillusioned. If you're not, then go back and become. Let me know when you're finished. You know, but if you still kind of want to just kind of hedge your bets, I want a bit of samsara, a bit of nirvana, kind of one I want to be, I want to be something I'm not. If you're still there, go home. Go home, get back to me later. When you are really totally fed up with samsara, then develop that authentic spirit of emergence and develop a truly authentic, deeply trusting relationship with a guru. Get your guru yoga down. Get that down. You're going to really need it. And I, I, I'm not kidding. You really need that. And then it's shamatha. That's it. Not a lot of reference to bodhicitta, not a lot of reference, there's no reference to emptiness and so state of regeneration, completion, no reference to prostrations, vajrasattva, so forth. That's manana, manana, that's down the road. We'll get your shamatha, settle your mind in its natural state. Finish the job and then get back to me when you're finished. That's the seventh common preliminary, that's his strategy. And then he goes from there to the uncommon preliminaries with no numbers, no numbers. Says practice, practice them until you see the science of success. If it's ten thousand, that's fine. If it's three hundred thousand, that's fine. Practice until you see the signs of success, and they'll tell you what they are. For the prostrations, the vajrasattva, and so forth and so on. Then he goes stage of generation completion, tekchut and tutkal. There's a strategy. That's what that is. It's a strategy. We see the strategy here. A lot of references to preliminaries. But we condense those down in a very quintessential and traditional way, drawing from Padmasambhava, inserted that in instead of having another book we spend you know, a year or two reading. Uh, so we covered that, common and uncommon preliminaries, and then we go right to creating the sacred space and the sense of sacred identity, and go to Avalokiteshvara, set that scene, and from that basis, okay, launch. Shamatha, right? But you know where you're going. Settle the mind in its natural state, get it done, and then Vipassana. So there's a strategy. There's a strategy, very similar to Dujumlingba or Padmasambhava's strategy by way of Dujumlingba. Common, uncommon preliminaries, shamatha. Bam, right in. So these are strategies. Find one that whew, gives you kind of that rush, that kind of like, I think I could do that. I think that one seems like that's workable. See that one that resonates, because there's no right one. There's no right one. One size, one size of shoe fits all. You need to find the one, the strategy, that gives you that sense of confidence, 
Not that it's going to be quick, but that it's going to work. So when I think of Lerup uh, Lingba, and I must say I strongly resonate with that, his approach, develop authentic motivation, the Guru Yoga, and then just go right into Shamatha and do it until you're finished. You know, I really resonate with that one. And it really struck, it struck me there with this, this afternoon, just one of those things that came up, um, that era of American history, I know it's local, but the metaphor is universal. 1840s, we had these people from, often from relatively comfortable lives in the East, farms, civilization, schools, churches, government, law, and so forth, and for whatever reason, feeling dissatisfied. And they would come, these early pioneers, they would come, this the 1840s, they would come and they're traveling through wilderness. It was very little of it was known even then, 1845, 1846, like that. And of course, by and large, they would join a wagon train. Well, I recently saw a documentary on what that was like. It's a very well done, very, you know, very historically accurate documentary. What was it like to buy your oxen, buy your wagon train, and then think, I'm about to travel close to 2,000 miles across raw wilderness to get someplace I'm not? And I don't know anybody who's been there, but I think it's probably better than where I was. If you are faint of heart, if you kind of think, might be cool. <laughs> Don't even think about it. Because it was so demanding, so hard, so sometimes terminal, that unless you are absolutely committed to getting to the far shore, stay home. Stay home. Unless you're committed to going all the way across, stay home. It's not that bad here. The Midwest, the East Coast, really wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all, you know, comparatively speaking. But if for whatever reason you feel, I've got to, there's nothing here for me. And that's the only place. Okay. That's renunciation, is in the metaphor. But there's one more big one. And that is... If you think you can get in your wagon and just do this all by yourself, you are out of your mind. The chances of success are so small, you may as well just dig your grave right here and hop in. You know, you're not going to make it. You better find yourself a wagon master who's gone there, come back, and you can count on. He's not going to rip you off. He's not going to run away. not going to chicken out. He's going to take care of you all the way to the far side. You better find a wagon master and you better trust him. And he better be trustworthy. And he better know the whole way. And then that's enough. It's a pretty strong, pretty strong analogy. So now we hone right in on our practice here. Vipassana. Vipassana. Now we know exactly what it's for. It's not to get to the far side of shamatha. It's to get to the far side of either becoming a, a foe destroyer, a solitary victor, or a victor, a victorious one. And this one really, on this path, of course, is to become a victorious one, to overcome all obscurations. Within Vipassana, there are also different strategies. So, Dapodashi Namgyal, the great Gagyupa master, great meditation master, 
I think he was, what was that, 16th century, I think. And the Benjen Losenjik Yansen, the tutor to the fifth Dalai Lama, that's 17th century. And Padmasambhava, going way back, it was a derma, a, an earth treasure, discovered in the 14th century, but buried there in what, 8th century, 9th century. All three of these say there are two routes, and that means there are many more. That's just my little tiny sampling of the great ocean of Buddhist teachings in Tibet. But these three are representative, and they all say this. There are two routes. Okay, we're talking strategy again here. And it's Vipassana-rated st strategy. Right? And that is, you can go by, by way of the view to the meditation, or you can go by way of the meditation to the view. Two basic strategies. And that is, you know, and you know it, so I can use very few words. Study well, learn Madhyamaka, learn, learn the Mahamudra theory, learn Dzogchen theory, learn it well, study, learn, debate, get good understanding, hear, think, understand it. Are you ready? Are you charged? Okay. Do, 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 you know. Head out, charge, you know. Knowing, having, you know, maybe years of training, so you really know the theory, and then charge, right? So there's one. And um, it was Tapodashi Namgyal, I mentioned this a few days ago, he was the one that said, that's for people of sharp faculties. Sharp faculties. Padmasambhava and uh, Penchen Rinpoche, I, they didn't say that, they just said they're two. And what they say, <laughs> Penchen Rinpoche, the uh, Padmasambhava and Penchen Rinpoche, who the group is regarded as a speech emanation of Padmasambhava, they both say, between these two, my way is meditation first, view second. So kind of like, I'm here to take care of the dull-witted ones, the ones of dull faculties. I love that. I kind of almost want to be, well, I don't have to want to be, I already am, but I kind of want to be dull faculties when I know that Padmasambhava is going to be the one heading the wagon train. I want to be in his wagon train. And actually, I turn out to be dull faculties, so that worked out quite nicely. <laughs> if you think I'm joking, you're, you're simply wrong. And so there's that route. Now, something very interesting in this anthology of essays, I'm almost finished translating it, a couple of days and I'll be finished. One very interesting point from Galupa. I found this very interesting, never heard it before. And that is all of you, and many of you do have Galupa background. You know that there is a strong emphasis, well, really learn, hear, hear teachings, think about them, learn as much as you can, then put them into practice. Big strong emphasis on that, it's very good. And you also know perfectly well that you should really, if you want to practice Vipassana, you should really learn the Madhyamaka view. You should really learn it. You should hear it, you should think about it, and then you're ready to meditate, meditate on it. And you should, and the more thoroughly you study, the more deeply you reflect, maybe you spend four years debating on it in a monastic court, courtyard, in your formal monastic training, then the, more, the better prepared you will be for actually venturing into the meditation. So it is said. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. What this Gulukma master said, when he is analyzing and showing the common ground between the Dzogchen and the Gelupa approach. He said, well, it's like Kalurambache, on the other hand. So interesting. And this, he has to be a Gelupa master of great substance, otherwise his holiness would never have suggested that I translate this took. If he thought there's some flaky Gelupa, the last thing he'd want is somebody to translate in English, and have some flaky Gelupa's ideas out there, you know, out to the rest of the world. So I think we can assume his holiness definitely given his imprimatur on the three or four authors who have contributed essays to this volume. So what this author says is that 
in the Skulukpa approach, we study well, we learn, the, we learn the Madhyamaka view, specifically we learn the Prasangaka Madhyamaka view, we study Chandrakirti, we study his, his commentary to Nagarjuna's root text on wisdom, we study Chandrakirti's two commentaries, we study Tsongkhapa's commentaries, we study sub-commentaries, and then we really get a razor-sharp understanding of exactly what is the object to be refuted, the object of negation. We get that like, like a brain surgeon finding exactly which ganglia of neurons need to be taken out, exactly where is the cancer, and we go right in and just cut them out and nothing else and leave the rest of the brain intact. It's really precision surgery, right? It really is. It's very, and don't mess it, because if you cut too much, it's brain damage. Don't c- cut enough and the patient dies. So that's it. I mean, if you cut too much, you fall into nihilism. Don't cut enough, then you're just back home on the ranch, right back in samsara again. So you've got to be very precise about that. That means you better study well, right? And it's all about that first step. Get the first step, and the rest is easy. But you've got to, to, to identify with precision exactly what are you nuking. You're, dro- you're about to drop a smart, smart bomb in a, in a big city. Drop exactly right, because this is a very local bomb. It will blow to smithereens exactly where you hit, but you don't want to do collateral damage. So what's your object navigation? Right? That's really precise. That's the way the Galupas do it. It's worked. Is it? Well, on the other hand, the Nyumapas, the old school. Interestingly enough, I've read a number. I'm not erudite, but I have had repeated guidance in a number of these meditation manuals now. In the Nyingma meditation manuals, I've not seen one reference to identifying the objectification. Not one. So that sounds, oh boy, then somebody's wrong. Okay, who's wrong? Who's wrong? Okay, wrong guy, stand up. Nyingmapas, you, you're wrong? Stand up. Galupas, you're wrong? Stand up. Yeah, because this is different. And no, this Galupa master, he said, you know, they have a different strategy. And that is they're achieving shamatha first, but they're not only achieving shamatha first, they are practicing shamatha by way of shamatha focused on the mind. Or shamatha of awareness of awareness. They're going right into the battleground where you're going to fight the great fight of Vipassana. They're going right to the battleground in the shamatha phase, so they've they got the lay of the land. They have been scrutinizing the battlefield before they ever come out to wage the war. They know it. They know the terrain. It's their terrain. And that's where they achieve shamatha. They've spent hundreds of hours there, probably, observing this mind, surveying it, getting the lay of the landscape, and saying, this is where we're going to fight the battle. And I'm going to be, it's going to be my ground. We're going to fight this battle on my ground. And I will know every inch of it. You know? And the strategy is, achieve shamatha. And that means if you achieve it in the classic way, taking the mind as the path, focusing shamatha focused on the mind, by the time you get to the point where your coarse mind has dissolved into the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, glupa terminology, or the substrate consciousness, you know the lay of the land from the top to the bottom. There's no part of that you don't understand. Because you've seen it on a grungy, nasty, superficial level, and you've seen it all the way down to the ninth stage of shamatha, just before your your mind is about to say, it's about to disappear. It's about to go, you know, dissolve. <laughs> you never saw that one coming, have you? <laughs> the sound of music in a Vipassana talk. Oh, my goodness. So you know the lay of the land. So what's their strategy? 
They may not have done much vipassana or that is majamaka stuff at all, but they've got their shamatha and they know the lay of the land. And what do they do? Different strategy. You don't find it that much in the glupa. But it's everywhere in the Kagyut Nyingma tradition, Mahamudra, Dzogchen tradition. It goes by three syllables. Jung, ne, do. Sum, sum means three. The three. Jung, ne, do. Origins, location, destination. That's it. And this Golupa master says, it works. Different strategy. It works. But if and only if you've achieved shamatha, and if and only if you know the lay of the land. You've been focusing on a Buddha image the whole time. That's not going to help you that much for knowing the nature of mind. Helps you somewhat, but not like this. Not like looking at it for 5,000 hours. Do it that way, and he said, this one works. So it's really a matter of where do you want to spend your time. You can spend your time going off and spending 20 years to become a Kempo or a Geshe. Learn the view, and then hopefully you have time. Not be dead would be a good idea. Uh, to go to meditation. Or you can just say... Let's just get shamatha in order to practice vipassana and go right into the core. So without further ado, one more comment. <laughs> During those 20 years that I had a lot of exposure with Galupa, uh, it's just like the, everybody was saying one thing in one way. Identify the object negation. Once you've identified it, you can nuke it from this angle and this angle and this angle. You've got all the six collections of reasonings of Nagarjuna. You have a multiplicity of reasonings within Chantakirti and Tsongkhapa. You've got this one. You've got all kinds of strategies. But first of all, you have to identify the enemy. And then you can attack it from all sides. right? But you have to get the enemy, and that means you have to probably study a lot. right? Interestingly, we'll see it ourselves. You'll see it in the next 10 pages. There is no one strategy. I mean, the Jung Ne Do Sum, origin, location, destination, yeah, that's cropping up all over the place. But as you'll find, they're coming in from multiple angles, like surround and then get them from all angles and converge them in. Finito. Different strategy. But it's all about mind. All about mind. Oh yeah, that's enough now. So please find comfortable position. You don't want your body being a nuisance now. And as you're settling in, a bit, a bit of comment for the post-meditative, because I might forget it later. I mentioned about four weeks ago that this time is a balance between a group retreat and 50 individual retreats, and that we are not maintaining absolute silence. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but if you are having conversation here, you really want to remind yourself that it has to be by agreement that the person you're about to talk to really wants to talk. Because everybody here has a right to be in your own space. 21 and a half, 21 and a half hours per day that we're not here. If you want to be in a really strict, solitary retri retreat and be very, very silent, that has to be respected, whoever it is. If that's your choice, if you'd like to be engaged in conversation, then you can make that clear to other people. And then you need to find another one who would also like to be in conversation. You have that conversation and you finish it. But we're at cruising altitude now. This is right in the middle. This is as good as it gets. So every day, maintain that balance of being in a Sangha 
We're, we're here all to look after each other, but that's only one half the balance. The other half of balance, we have 50 people here in solitary retreat. So let's honor that, all of us, and do our best not to disrupt anybody else. And if they want to speak, then we may speak with them. But if they'd like to maintain their silence, that has to be honored. Okay, so let's just all bear that in mind. No time to waste. Settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Let this all-creating sovereign of your awareness sit upon its throne. Find that stillness within, rest there. There are two aspects here, both extremely important. Let your awareness be still and know that it is still. Let your eyes be at least partially open. Rest your gaze vacantly in the space in front of you. Eyes soft, face soft. Now direct the light of your awareness on the space of the mind and whatever events arise within that domain, let your awareness continue to be still, clearly distinguishing between the stillness of your awareness and the movements of the mind.
for a little while, take the mind, the space of the mind and its contents, as the object of your shamatha practice, just for a short time. Get the lay of the land, know the terrain. through the practice correctly and know that you're doing it correctly. And doing the practice correctly means that whatever appearances arise in the space of the mind, you simply attend to them for what they are. You view appearances as appearances. The space of the mind itself is a subtle appearance. Attend to that as an appearance. Adding nothing, reifying nothing, Again, in the Prasangika Majyamaka tradition, it said, insofar as you are attending simply to appearances without any overlay, your awareness of them is valid. There's nothing to refute, nothing to correct. If you're keeping it clean, keep it clean. That's this practice. We sentient beings tend to take ourselves quite seriously as sentient beings. And we do so because we have a sentient being's mind. That's enough. 
if you are a semjen, a mind-haver, and that mind is a deluded mind, the mind of a sentient being, then you are a sentient being. We human beings tend to take ourselves very seriously as human beings. Men take themselves seriously as men, women as women, and so on. Largely because of our minds. What stands between your awareness and your awareness of pristine awareness, pristine awareness knowing itself? What stands between? What's the barche, the obstacle? What's between you and knowing your own Buddha nature? The Buddha nature is here right now. Why aren't we seeing it? What's in the way? The mind of a sentient being. So look for this mind of a sentient being. Where is it? You've thought about it so many times, you've referred to it, you've described it, it's tormented you, it's made you joyful, it's been boring and interesting, clear and dull. Okay, now find it. Where is it? These thoughts and images that arise, they come up like midges, like fleas, like flies. They just come and they go. Is that your mind? Is that what all the trouble is about? Is that your mind? Is this what stands between you and Buddhahood? These little flies? You're looking at your mind like no one else can, unless they have extraordinary powers. You're looking right at it. It doesn't get better than this. So find it. You're looking right where it is. You must be. 
What's the referent of the word, my mind? Is it out there? Out there in the space of the mind? Is it out there someplace? Where is it hiding? Scrutinize the space of the mind. Where is the mind? Beyond a mere empty appearance, where is this mind that wields such power that can be so destructive? Find it. If you find it, maybe you can tame it, but first you have to find it. Maybe it's not out there. Maybe it's in here, in here where you are, on the subjective side, the observer side. Maybe it's right in here where you are. If so, examine closely. Maybe it's in here. Look for it. If it's there, it should be findable. This is the right place to look. It's got to be either out there or in here. How could it be anywhere else? Maybe the instructions were misleading. After all, what does out there mean? And where's the border between out there and in here, between the space of the mind and that which is observing the space of the mind? Where's that border? Maybe that was misleading. Where is out there? Where's that? What's the referent? out there in the space of the mind. What's that referring to? Anything at all? 
likewise the term in here or over here, where you are, you know. Where's that? Does that mean anything at all? Does that phrase, in here, does that have a referent? Where is in here? Where's the border? Where are the boundaries? What does it mean? We know the mind is powerful. It's because of people's minds that wars are waged, empires are built, cities are constructed, schools are planned, science advances, technology grows, all because of the mind. Incredibly powerful. What could be more real than the mind that is behind all of those? This all-creating sovereign So find it. Where is it? If it's here, it's got to be here somewhere. Search diligently until you either find it or you know with certainty it is not to be found because it's not there. One of the two. Be thorough. Be decisive.
And if there comes a certainty that it's nowhere to be found, neither out there, nor in here, or anywhere else, know that absence. Know that emptiness of the appearances of the mind. Of there being anything more than empty appearances. Rest there, sustaining the flow of cognizance. To relate this very, very briefly to a practice, practice that we've done now for a few weeks, the Guru Yoga with Padmasambhava, the Avalokiteshvara practice. This one's crucial.
and that is that clinging to the mind of a sentient being has got to go. You have to clean house until the house is empty. You can't keep that one and say, I'll have a bit of Avalokiteshvara too. You can't be Napoleon and be a carpenter on the side. One has to be dissolved. An empty house, and in the empty house emerges my Padmasambhava, Buddha nature. Kind of crucial. Olaso. Let's get cracking with the text now. Bottom of page 89. We've just finished with the body. And so here we go. We go right into it. And I think with all of the commentary that's preceded this, I think we can now cut through this like a hot knife through butter. Well then, since I and the self must be the mind, seek out the mind. I mean, you know you're here someplace. And if you're nowhere to be found in the body, I mean, where else could you be? Right? If no body part, just nowhere there, you are where you are there. And if there isn't in the body, then the only other thing there is your mind. So it's got to be, now you're kind of like Sherlock Holmes, process of elimination. If you're not in your body and you're really there, you've got to be in your mind. So check. So the great Tantra of Samputta states, you who wish to be freed from the bondage of types of suffering and who desire the joy of perfect Buddhahood carefully and diligently, investigate whether the mind does or does not have a self-nature. It's a nice open question. Self-nature means ranjin, and that is its own inherent nature. What that means is something very specific and it's clear. It's not hard to understand. The words are not anyway. And that is it has a self-nature if it's really there. And really there means before you label it, before you think about it, it's already there. If you're walking through, it's only a coarse analogy, but if you're walking through a dark room and you stumble on a chair in the dark, well, it was there, right? That would kind of seem it would be truly existent because it was there. And then, oh, that was a chair. Or you can call it a kupya, or you can call it a stool, or you can call it anything you like. But it's there before you call it anything. It's already there. So is the mind like that? Is the mind already there? Does your mind, is it really there or not? That's the question. To be or not to be. Inherently existent. That's the question. He starts off with a boom. You know, this is how he's leading the charge. That's the first sounding of the trumpet. This is what we're after. The Tantra of the Full Enlightenment of Varochana states, the, Vajrapani, the, the Bodhisattva Vajrapani asked of Lord Varochana, Lord, where does one seek enlightenment and omniscience? Whose enlightenment is it? And the Lord, that is Varochana, replied, Master of Secrets, it's an epithet of Vajrapani, omniscience and enlightenment are to be sought in your own mind. Okay? So do not look outside yourself for enlightenment or for the Buddhas. The Ratna Mega Sutra, the Sutra of the Cloud of Jewels, states, I quoted this earlier, here it is very pithy, the mind precedes all phenomena. Phenomena does mean that which appears, that which is manifest. In other words, you could say the mind precedes all experiences. If there's no mind, there's no, there are no experiences. That one's kind of almost not debatable. If there's no mind, there's no experiences. No phenomena. Phenomena are those things that are experienced. If there's something that exists and nobody ever experiences it, it's not a dharma. But if nobody experiences, then why talk about it? Because nobody knows about it. And so 
the, the mind perceives all phenomena, and if the mind is comprehended, all phenomena will be comprehended. That's a real battle plan. He's saying, and it's, it's actually logical. If there are these multiple dimensions of mind, I made up a word yesterday. As we remember the term flat earthers, people, yeah, no, no, don't know if they ever existed, but flat earthers, you remember them? So we all laugh at them, how silly and like that. Well, I think there are very few flat earthers nowadays, probably a few here and there. Flat minders. Flat minders, I think, think that the when mind is only that which arises independence upon the brain. A flat minder. Ordinary mind is all there is. If the ordinary mind's gone, you're a, you're nothing. Destroy your brain, nothing's left because you're a flat minder. Because whenever you think of mind, all you know about it, all you can even imagine or accept is mind that arises independence upon brain. Destroy the brain, no mind. Okay, you're a flat minder. But that's extremely primitive. And it shows you just haven't been looking. Not with rigor, not with sophistication. You don't have a telescope. If you've discovered substrate consciousness, like Plato, seems like he may have, Socrates, Pythagoras, kind of likely, at least one of those guys, Pythagoras for sure. If they've discovered substrate consciousness, he said he could remember 20 lies, remember? Plato said when you learn something new, you're just basically recalling what you knew from past life. And if there's no beginning, just logically speaking, let's just working hypothesis, not brainwashing, working hypothesis. If there's a dimension of your being, a continuum of consciousness, just a substrate consciousness, just that local one, but if that has no beginning, if that actually has no beginning, that means it was when the Big Bang happened. No beginning means no beginning. Big Bang was only 13.8 billion years ago. That was, you know, three, three shakes of a lamb's tail. This means you've seen everything. From a formless realm, if the Big Bang's happening, you can watch it. You know, you get to arena seat from the form realm. Because that's taking in form realm, a desire realm. You can watch it, I suppose. If that's true, you've got a substitute consciousness that goes back then you could know an awful lot about the history of the universe just by tapping into your memories. But let alone if there's beyond that, for those of us who are not flat-minders, if there's pristine awareness, indivisible from the ground of beginning, ground of being, dhammadhatu, if you're viewing reality from that perspective, nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden. Everything of samsara and nirvana consists of nothing other than creative displays of that ultimate ground. So if you bring that, you've got it. You've, you've finished the job. You're the ultimate scientist. So I think he means this literally. If the mind all the way down is comprehended, all phenomena will be comprehended. The sutra of instructions on the indivisibility of the, I, I used to call this absolute nature of reality. It's absolute space of phenomena. It's, it's closer. Dhammadhatu, Dhammadhatu. So, indivisibility of the Dhammadhatu states, precisely examine whether this mind is blue or yellow or red or white or vermilion or like the color of crystal, whether it is real or unreal, permanent or impermanent, and whether or not it has form. Those are marching orders. Some of those you think you probably got it nailed real quickly. Blue. Had a number of people report Lavender. Lavender definitely has some votes for lavender. 
but does it have color? Or are these colors simply appearances in the mind, and therefore they're not the mind, because they're in the mind? Whether it's real or unreal, well, that's exactly that point earlier. Does it have self-nature or not? Is it really there? Or is it simply, I mean, it's amazing, and it's really strange, but does the mind come into existence only in dependence upon conceptual designation like everything else? Prajnaparamita, perfection of wisdom, 100,000 verses, is multiple statements. Says, from elementary particles all the way up to the omniscient mind of a Buddha, everything without exception, in that whole bandwidth, is empty of inherent nature. That's a big statement. True or false? You have to know, you can't just believe it. Mind. Is it permanent or impermanent? Changing, unchanging, momentary, or is it static? Does it have shape? Does it have form? Does it space of the mind? Some people would say, well, thoughts occur in the mind, therefore the space of the mind is, is the mind. That's, that's the mind, the space, where all this mental stuff happens. Cool, does it have a form or not? Shape? Location? So he's giving marching orders. This, this is what, what you need to know. The Sutra of the Questions of Kashyapa states, it's the Mahayana Sutra, thus, or in this way, seek out the mind. What is the mind? This is interesting. Now this, again, people listening by podcast, people here who are not spending 24 hours a day on the cushion. Check this one out in between sessions. Check it out when you're on the cushion. What is the mind that becomes lustful or angry or deluded? The mind's not always full of lust, right? Not always. It's not always angry. Comes and goes like malarial fit, you know, fever. Then it goes. The mind is not homogeneously delusional, isn't homogeneously reifying with tenacity. Sometimes it's very gross, really strong. Delusion really surges up, very strong grasping, very strong, palpable reification. And other times, probably during the last 24 minutes, a bit shyer, not so active. Like, who, me? I'm just kind of hanging out. I don't do anything. That's what thieves always say. Not me. I just, I just happen to be here. The guy who did a bombing in Bangkok. No, no, the guy, no, the guy on the train in, in Belgium, I think it was. Happened about a week or two ago. He was loaded with, loaded with guns. He was just kind of packed with guns and ammo. And these three American guys tackled and disarmed him. No one was hurt. But he said, I just found them. <laughs> <laughs> I just found them. I just wanted to hold some people up and then jump out the window. I just found them. Son of a gun. You know, they must have a lot of weapons in Belgium. I just found them. Yeah. Okay. Who, me? I just wanted a few purses. I just all they wanted. They always lie. That's what the mental afflictions do. The mind does. Delusion does. So, but when it does become lustful, when the mind does get caught in the grip, it falls into a refractory period. If it never does again, then you can't use this again. You can't use this. But if you think it's possible that your mind may, on some occasion, again, fall into mental affliction of attachment or anger or delusion, then here's really the attitude. I mean, we're talking military here. 
And that is your job is to seek out the enemy and destroy him. Okay, I'll put it in the mail instead of saying her. Okay, it's destroy him. It's seek out and destroy. That's the mission, right? Seek out and destroy. It comes up all the time. Seek and destroy. So you know what you want to destroy. You want to destroy delusion. You want to get right to the root of craving and hostility. And when does the enemy come into clear sight? You can actually get him in the sights, right in your telescopic sight. You know where to pull the trigger. When does that happen? When the enemy shows itself, isn't like what it was doing for 24 minutes, disappearing into the shadows. And so you're kind of, oh, I think I'm realizing emptiness. The emptiness of finding anything at all. <laughs> See what that does for you. you know. But when the enemy shows up, when your mind gets caught in the grip of craving, or hostility, or delusion, check it out. That's when it's showing its face. That's when you can check it. Watch that mind. You never know what's coming up. It's warfare. They don't say, in five minutes I'm going to come. They come generally for the back door. They get you when you're not looking. You remember Shantideva. When your mind's distracted, that's when you're between the fangs of the mental afflictions. They'll get you when you're not looking. Let that be as little as, as rare, rarely as possible. Be looking. Okay. So, what is the mind? If Steve, does it, does your mind ever become lustful, or greedy, or selfish, or angry, or deluded? Is it something this mind? So, what is that mind that's so powerful drives you crazy, drives you to do terrible things, and sometimes wonderful things? What is that mind? Is it something that arises in the past, or the future? or the present? I'm sure you've nailed the answer already. It's got to be in the present. Exactly when is that? <laughs> because by the time you've recognized, seriously, by the time you've recognized that your mind is in the grip of attachment, is that mind in the present or the past? By the time you recognize your mind is really angry, pissed off, resentful, the mind that is pissed off and resentful, is it now or is it already in the past? If it's in the past, does it exist? I mean, it's a question, not an answer. But if it's already past, does it exist? And likewise, for a mind that's deluded. Where is it in the three times? Where? Where do you ever find it? Do you ever find it? In the present moment, the immediacy of the present moment, do you ever see a mental affliction right there in that pinpoint of the present moment? Do you ever see a mental affliction there? Have you ever seen a mental affliction there? Seen an afflicted mind in the present moment? Or is it always retrospective, which means you're observing something that isn't there? Is that right? And it's certainly not in the future. We figured that one out. So we're all tormented by mental afflictions, right? Where's the mind that torments us? If it's not in the present, but it's not in the past, Certainly not in the future. So where is it? Good question, yeah? So you see, he's not just coming in from one angle. It's kind of like surround and then attack all at once and leave no survivors. It continues in a lengthy discussion. The Sutra of 33 Questions states all the three worlds, that is, desire, form, and formless realms, all the three worlds come into being from the mind. They don't exist outside the space of the mind. The mind never reveals itself, this great all-creating sovereign. It is without form, ethically neutral. 
and like an apparition. It seems to be there, and then you look for it, and it's just not. The wise seek the nature of the mind. Whoever seeks out the mind does not see the nature of the mind, that mind that is really there, that has its own self-nature. True or false? True or false? This is a strategy. The tantra of the blazing, clear expanse of the great perfection states, in order to analyze the mind into its components, after all, the mind has aspects, it has characteristics. It doesn't have, you know, components like bricks, but the mind has emotions, the mind has desires, it has memories, it has appearances, it has memories, it has mindfulness, introspection. The mind certainly has components, elements, attributes. So, check them out. Check them out. In order to analyze the mind into its components, focus on the idea, on this idea alone. Ho ho. Awareness without conceptual elaboration is the Dharmakaya. That's an interesting starting point. In this awareness, free of conceptual elaboration, there is no arising, remaining, or going. That's the nature of awareness. That's the nature of pristine awareness. That's Dharmakaya. There is no arising, remaining, or going. It's in the fourth time. Pristine awareness is in the fourth time. It's not in the present, past, or future. It's out of the matrix. Whence did this fluttering, churning, shifting, fleeting phenomenon called the mind, whence did it arise? Where did it come from? Where did it first come from? One of you asked, if we have Buddha nature, if we have pristine awareness, then how come we're deluded? Good, so now the question comes right back to you. If you're deluded, when did that first happen? And don't think about Big Bang or mother's womb or past life. If it's happening, it's happening right now. If it's not happening right now, then it never happened. So if you want to know the origins of suffering, you want to know the origins of delusion, don't look any place other than the present moment. You'll never find it in the past. The past is only viewed from the present anyway. So if you want to know the origins of samsara, don't think about history. History is viewed from the present, which means it's a mirror reflection of the present. Always has been. If you want to know the origins of suffering, look in the present moment. If you want to know how awareness becomes shrouded by delusion, don't think about the past. Look at it right now, because now is when samsara begins. Whence did it originally arise? And where is it located in the meantime, once the mind is here, this flittering, agitated, my mind is so agitated, my mind falls into laxity, my mind's getting quite dull, blah, blah, blah. Okay, where is it? And when did this first happen? Where did it come from? And now that it's here, where is it? And then, it's not always there. Again, it's com- it comes and goes, right? The mind does come and go. When you're deep sleep, where's your mind? Then you wake up, oh, there you are. <laughs> then you fall back, oh, peekaboo gone. Oh, there you are. And then you dream, like, oh, what's that? <laughs> you know, complete delusion. So where does it go in the end? When you pass out. So this is your homework for tonight. You're going to lose your mind tonight. The chances are very good. You're going to lose your mind. Don't worry, it'll find you. But for a while, it'll be lost. It's kind of the lost and found bin. Nighttime is lost and found bin. So when you lose your mind, see, where does your mind go? Because when you're deep sleep, you don't have one. So where does it go? Watch it. I'm going to keep you awake for a while. 
What are its shape and color? Can you break it down in terms of its being external, internal, or in between? So that's what we covered in the last session. External, internal. It's where the Buddhists just start laughing. I think, really. I mean, I'm being presumptuous. <laughs> but really, what's the reference of the words? Really? I mean, you've all seen Mickey Mouse on top of my head, right? You know where external is, right? On top of my head, right? Mickey Mouse, right? That's external? Really? Aren't you just looking into your own mind when you see Mickey Mouse on top of my head? I mean, where is that if it's not in your mind? It's not sort of outside your mind. You can visualize Mickey Mouse on the crown of your head. You can visualize Mickey Mouse in your heart. I don't recommend it, but you can. <laughs> it might give you karma to be born as a, ro a, a rodent, so I'm not really encouraging it, but temporarily as a little kind of very brief Experiment. You could visualize Mickey Mouse in the center of your heart on a lotus moon and sun. <laughs> With the syllable M in the center. <laughs> you could do that. Why not, you know? And of course you know what the mantra says. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. <laughs> Clearly the mantra. We, <laughs> we all learn the mantra. Tibetans learn Omane Bemu Hung, and we in America, we learned M-I-C. You know? We know the mantra. So exactly is that inside? The Mickey Mouse in your heart chakra, is that inside? Is that somehow more inside than the Mickey Mouse you visualize on my crown chakra because I belong to the Mickey Mouse family? Whereas this is the time we should be laughing. You know, Really? What's the reference of these words, inside and outside? We had to take it so seriously, and even when kids, you know. This is my, with siblings, I had three siblings. This is my side. <laughs> this is my side. You can't come on my side. Mom said this is my side. You stay on that side. It's my side. <laughs> right? We know about sides, right? But where's the border? One more and we'll break. The primary tantra, this is a great big Dzogchen tantra. The primary tantra on the penetration of sound states, investigate with certainty. That is, you've got to investigate until you gain some knowledge, some definite knowledge. Investigate with certainty the initial origin of the mind, its subsequent location, and its final departure. That is, where does it go? Its destination is a better translation. Where did it come from? Where is it now? Where does it go? Such mental training is of benefit to the mind. We'll leave it there. That's the core instruction. Now, when the, the Galupa author, we need to get to dinner, but I'm going to take this final one point. When the Galupa author said this is a Dzogchen approach and it works, just consider that this really is intended. We should start it. I'm teaching it because we should practice it. But who's the intended audience here? Like if you're in high school and you're studying trigonometry when you're 16 years old, this assumes you've already had geometry, right? And that assumes you've already had algebra, right? And that assumes you've already studied basic arithmetic and fractions, right? That's why it's called, you know, it's junior high school level. It's a junior year, trigonometry. If you're smart, maybe go into calculus when you're a senior, right? That's what it was when I was a kid, right? 
He's assuming you've passed, you've graduated from shamatha. And so when you're doing this practice and you're resting in substrate consciousness, what would it be like then to be asking these questions when you've dissolved your mind down so it's just flat out naked? Not naked like pristine awareness, but naked like got no gender, got no personal history, got no form, got no body, got no... It's just substrate consciousness and space. That's called subtle mind. Imagine doing this practice when you are right there without mediation, without noise, with no flies buzzing around your head. You stripped it down naked. And now you're asking, mind? I mean, there's nobody else in the room. Right? When you say mind, there's not much, there are not many choices here. Not much happening. Subtle mind, space. Substrate consciousness, substrate. That's pretty much it. Imagine with that clean operating room, you go in with a knife. Are you really here? Your substrate consciousness. You really here? Substrate. You really here? You can make quite quick work of that because it's such a clean operating room, unlike our messy minds. Okay. That's the sound of a kangaroo. <laughs> from America. <laughs> Good night.